You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I'm going to tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, How to Trigger Unbelievers. How to Trigger Unbelievers. We are at the conclusion of John chapter 10, and we have been, in the past few weeks, been studying the I am statements, the great I am statements of Christ, and just the reaction that the Jewish people, mostly the religious elites, had in response to these I am statements. And as we just read from our passage this morning, the Pharisees and the religious elites were very much triggered, if you don't know what that word means, that's okay, you're from the older generation, that's fine. It just simply means that, you, that, that they were provoked, provoked to anger. They were provoked to hatred, even to the extent of wanting to stone Jesus. Uh, I'm sure everyone can relate to this. My kids, funny enough, are of that age where they are starting to press each other's buttons. They know exactly how to get on each other's nerves. It's like every, every time before a meal, it's, it becomes a war zone at the table because they want to beat each other in who gets to pray first, right? And I think they just, I would like to hope as a Christian father that they just very eager to pray to the Lord before the meal, but I'm pretty sure it's just so that they can compete with one another, push each other's buttons. They get triggered real easily. And we see that happen in our passage this morning, the the Pharisees are very much triggered at, at the comments that Jesus has made throughout our study these past few weeks. And they, of course, they, they want to kill Jesus, at, but we've seen this before in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, if you remember, at, at the, at when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, uh, the, the man, the lame man, and he did it on a Sabbath, the Pharisees wanted to kill him there. And then in John chapter 8, when Jesus makes another declaration of his divinity before Abraham was I am, the Jews also wanted to stone him there. And of course, now at John chapter 10, as we come to the conclusion of this great passage revealing the identity of Christ, these, as he states these two great I am statements, I am the door and I am the good shepherd, it's the same response that we have seen. After Jesus says in verse 30, I and, the, I and the Father are one, Jesus explicitly declaring his equality in, with the Father in divinity, in authority, in power, with the triune God, there is, this, there is this great sentiment from these Orthodox Jews that obviously they did not like his words. They don't take too kindly to people claiming to be God. And so, as we've just read in verse 31, that Jesus picked up stones, again, to stone him. If you've ever heard a, a non-believer, uh, particularly Muslims, who argue that Jesus never claimed to be God, well, that's not what the Jews think here in this passage. They fully understood what Jesus was talking about throughout chapter 10 of John's gospel, that Jesus was explicitly declaring his divinity. Now, mind you, despite the, this is all in the context of the evidence that was presented to them in chapter 9 with the man born blind who was then healed by Jesus and all the promises declared in chapter 10, yet despite all this, the Jews still wanted to kill Jesus. What follows in our passage and what we just read is 
Christ's appeal to these Jewish leaders through reason and uh, through reason and, and just logic for them to come to understanding and to, for them to actually believe. We see this in verse 38 of our passage. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There's a sense here in which Christ, despite already knowing who his sheep are, still has compassion on these, on these unbelievers who want to stone him, these dead sinners. And yet despite their depravity and, and the, the, the sinfulness of their hearts, uh, we still, and despite them not changing their mind, we still see Jesus try to get them to understand, to reason with them. Now, that being the main narrative, we also get to see what unbelievers, depraved sinners, get triggered by in our passage. What caused these Jews to want to stone and arrest Jesus, what really, what really got them riled up, and really what the world will hate about those who follow Christ, believers, Christians, us. If we faithfully follow the Savior in his footsteps, if we faithfully follow the good shepherd in his leading, then the world will, unfortunately, hate us. Now, our goal for this morning is not to devise a plan to intentionally trigger unbelievers. Don't get that confused. We're, we're called to live peaceably with all, to find favor with man, to be peacemakers. But, but unfortunately, because if we choose to follow Christ, this is the natural out outcome. The world will hate us. At the same time, we are to be reminded in our passage the kind of life, the kind of values, the worldview that we are to have that ultimately will trigger unbelievers, but we should remain steadfast in, should remain hopeful in. This morning, we'll be looking at the principles that the, that the sheep ought to imitate from the good shepherd, the qualities that Christ displays in our passage with the expectation that the world will despise us because of these qualities. <coughs> Excuse me. My hope is that the sermon would serve as a warning that the world will be triggered by us and how we live and how we think. But ultimately, there is hope even in that. There is hope even as the world hates us. There is a reward should we endure the hate of the world. John chapter 15 Verse 18 to 19, later Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is the reality for those who have been called by God, the elect sheep of the good shepherd, the followers of him that the world will hate us, but take heart. There is hope in the hatred, a reward in the revilement. And we'll see that today. But first, before we get into all of that, let's, let's see what triggered these unbelievers. Let's see what, what made these, these Pharisees so upset at Jesus and, and, and really see the qualities that we ought to imitate from the Savior himself. Let's unpack our passage. Go to verse 31 with me. We'll start there, though. The previous passages we already unpacked last week. We'll get to the meat of the, the, the discourse here at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. <clears throat> so if you remember from verse 24 last week, 
The Jews had asked Jesus, tell us plainly, right? If you are the Messiah, let us know. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That was in verse 24 of our passage. And now we really get to the reason as to why they asked that question. It wasn't in sincerity. They needed a reason to stone Jesus. They needed a reason to arrest Jesus. They wanted him to tell them or, or, or to, to speak blasphemy in this case. And they got what they wanted. Look at verse 32. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Again, this was the reason why they thought they could stone Jesus. And this was part of the Jewish law in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. It says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And the way of death was stoning. Blasphemy in the Old Testament was any act of insulting or showing contempt or a lack of reverence to God, or even the act of claiming the attributes of God, which clearly Jesus was in our passage. And the law required that he would be stoned. To the Jews, Jesus had been blaspheming because he was claiming to be God. Pretty plain and simple. So here's the first, here's the first sort of reason Jesus uh, triggered these unbelievers. And if you want to know how to trigger unbelievers, you have to understand, you just need to proclaim Jesus as God. Proclaim Jesus as God. Now, obviously, Jesus was not blaspheming. We understand in the Christian faith that Jesus was indeed God, uh, second person of the Trinity, of the triune God. We recall even in John chapter 8, Jesus himself says, before Abraham was, I am. That's him again, claiming the name of God for himself, the name of God in the Old Testament for himself. So Jesus is simply revealing his identity, his divinity to these Pharisees, to these Jews that he's having this conversation, this, this, this debate with. But what really triggers these unbelievers, these, these Pharisees, really is Christ's authority over them. It's Christ's authority. Because see, if Jesus is in fact God, as he claimed in our passage and other passages in Scripture, that would make him more authoritative than the Pharisees themselves. It would make him the highest authority because he is God. To rebellious humanity, this is the truest offense. This is the greatest grievance to a rebellious heart, to a sinner's heart. We can conclude uh, this idea of the Pharisees being offended by Jesus' authority because we see this throughout John's gospel as well. In John chapter 9, again, that passage where the, the, the man who was born blind was taken into the, to, to see the Pharisees and he was put on trial. And despite the evidence being brought forward, they still refused to believe them. And they even threatened the rest of the Jews that if anybody followed Jesus, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Now, it was a threat on their authority as religious leaders. In addition to that, we see later on, when G right before Jesus' crucifixion, when he's put on, put on trial before Pilate, the governor, there is an instance where Pilate presents Barabbas, and Jesus before the crowd. And it says in the Gospel of Matthew, for chapter 27, verse 17, it says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Then verse 18, look at this. It said, For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Talking about Jesus. 
It was out of envy that these religious leaders brought Jesus over to Pilate's hand to be crucified. Envy that their authority was waning when Jesus was bringing the truth of God, his divinity, his authority. And really, it's the same for the unbelievers that we encounter in our life, in our circles, in our workplaces, in our schools. In the heart of rebellious men, there is a desire for autonomy. A desire to choose for themselves their destiny. Their, their, what's good for them. There's a desire to be God of themselves. That's the propaganda that's being propagated in our world, in our culture, in our society these days. Follow your heart. You decide your gender, your sexuality, your destiny, your life. You decide, you decide for yourself. It's the same rhetoric, by the way, that was spewed by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The serpent said to Adam and Eve, you will be like gods. That was the great temptation of humanity. In the heart of rebellious men is a desire for autonomy, to be God themselves. And we see this explained in Romans chapter 1, of course, in verse 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's, that's the extent of human depravity. That instead of honoring God for God himself, or, and for, for, or, for submit, instead of submitting to his authority, humanity would rather give that honor and authority to something else, to someone else. That's how sinful hearts work. So when we, who are citizens of heaven, whose allegiance to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we who, who proclaim by faith and practice that Jesus is in fact God, the highest authority, the ultimate authority, not just in our life, and, but also in the universe, when we encounter those who seek to be their own gods or worship other gods, we can expect, even guarantee that there is conflict. I've mentioned before, maybe you've been driving down on the road and you've seen that coexist bumper sticker on people's cars. That doesn't fly with the God of the Bible. It doesn't fly with Jesus Christ. Expect to make a stand to, to endure hardship, to suffer the consequences because of this worldview that Christ is our highest authority. And it's exactly what the early church faced, if, if you recall, when they were under the Roman Empire, believers were pressured to hail Caesar as Lord because Rome had deified Caesar, their emperor. But refusing to do so because of their lack of compromise, believers were persecuted, thrown into the arena to be fed to the lions and turned into human candles, all because they would not compromise God's highest authority over their life. Christ's highest authority in their lives. And really, that's a call for modern Christians to do the same. To risk reputation. To risk career. To, to risk being accepted by the world. Being called names. Being canceled. Ostracized. Punished. All to say that Christ is God. Christ is Lord. Not Caesar. Not Trudeau. Not the woke mob, not science, not, not yourselves, 
not your flesh. Should we live to proclaim Jesus as God, the world will unfortunately hate us, and rightly so. Let's move on. There's some application at the end, but I'll get through the, the qualities first. It says in, in, in verse 34 of our passage, Jesus answered them in reply to all this, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? In the past, when I read this passage and I've studied it, I often thought that Jesus was sort of backtracking on his own claims of divinity, of his claims to be God, as of giving reason from the Old Testament as to why he can call himself God and even playing maybe with some semantics here. Technically, the Old Testament calls man God, so therefore it's okay. But the truth is far more greater than this. And... Um, and, and what I, I love what, what this, this passage or what Jesus is saying here because he's actually double, he, he's doubling down on his claims of divinity. Uh, he's doubling down on his claims of being God. Of, uh, I'm reminded of this, uh, this sandwich that you, they used to have at KFC called the Double Down. Anyone tried that before? Right? Where are my foodies at? No? Anyone tried the Double Down? Did you try the, yes? Oh my goodness. It's basically this thick, uh, original chicken recipe, chicken breasts, and stacked on top of another chicken breast, and inside the middle is some bacon and some mozzarella cheese and stuff. Woof! Telling you, that's like an abomination to the Lord. That's, uh... <laughs> but this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's not backtracking on his claims of being God or his divinity. He's actually doubling down. He, he's, he's pushing it even further. Our passage here, or Christ in our passage, is actually re referencing Psalm 82, verse 6. I'll, I'll read that for you right now. It says, I said you are God, Son of the Most High, all of you. Now, if you had left it at just that, it, you could misread Jesus' statement as saying, you know, again, semantics. Technically, God in his word is saying that we're all gods because we're sons of God. But in the context of this passage, in the context of this psalm, it actually reveals a lot more. Let me read this entire, well, the first parts of this psalm for you. Psalm 82, verse 1 to 7, says this. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, his, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Silla? Just because, get, rather, sorry, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince." Psalm 82 is in reference to unjust, evil human judges. Jesus is saying, if the word of God, which is the ultimate truth, contains no lie, if scripture cannot be broken, that's what he says in our passage, if the word of God itself calls these evil human judges gods, how much more the one Jesus himself, who the Father has consecrated and has come from the Father and has sent into the world. 
Verse 36 again says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is doubling down on his claim of being divine, of being the Son of God. He's saying, how much more me who have actually come from God? And then in addition to that, he's calling these Jewish leaders, these judges that the psalmist talks about, evil. Evil judges, evil leaders. Remember the context of John chapter 10 and verse 8. Jesus has already explicitly said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Jesus once again is claiming to be God and calling the Pharisees evil, these Jewish religious leaders. Now in addition to this, Jesus is doing something great that compounds the Pharisees' hatred for him. That triggers them all the more. He says, again, in our, that passage that we just read in, our, in, in John chapter 10, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods in verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. I love this phrase that Jesus puts in or adds into this statement. This is the affirmation by Christ himself of the inerrancy of scripture. That scripture is without error, without falsehoods. It is appeal to Scripture as the highest authority for humanity. That it has the highest, again, sola scriptura, as we believe. This act of referring back to Scripture, and we've seen this throughout the other Gospels as well, always when the Pharisees are trying to trap him and trying to accuse him of something, it really adds fuel to the fire and triggers the, these unbelievers all the more. And so, when we, do the same, when we do the same thing, we can expect that unbelievers will be triggered. How do we do this? Well, profess Scripture as truth. Profess Scripture as truth. As I mentioned, we've seen this time and time again, that Jesus stands on the Word of God whenever the Pharisees or the scribes are trying to trap him. Even the devil himself, when the devil himself tempts Jesus at the, the early parts of his ministry, and tell, telling Jesus to turn, turn stone into bread, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. But again, it's not just, uh, it's not just this idea of, uh, of using Scripture to counter arguments or to counter what other people believe, but really it's, it's a foundation Using Scripture, the Word of God, the truth of God, as a foundation, as a presupposition, as a worldview that we use to see the, the rest of the world, to see our circumstances even. Scripture cannot be, be broken, meaning, meaning it's true. Meaning every word of Scripture is true. Now, if, you're, if, you, if you say that to unbelievers, it will trigger a lot of... A, a lot of them. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is fully to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Then Paul goes on in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and fully to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When we live according to what, to that which Christ has declared in his words, to what scripture tells us is true, we live in a way that is a stumbling block to the Jews and regarded as foolishness to Gentiles, both of which makes enemies of us, especially when we certainly profess that Scripture is true, that the Bible is true, that it's absolute truth. The world will revile us. In a world of relativism, where feeling supersedes facts and truth is subjective and what's been known since the dawn of time as fundamental realities of this world are being overturned by delusions of the mentally ill and those who seek power. When we as a church live up to, to the call of being a pillar and buttress of the truth, as Scripture calls us to, we should expect hate and conflict. Expect to be called names like a bigot or a homophobe or a transphobe or misogynist or ignorant or crazy. Expect to be looked down upon because we trust in the word of God more than the words of men. But nonetheless, as believers, we must stand for the truth. We must not conform to the patterns of this world, but as the scripture calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and how we renew our minds is via the word of God. We must profess that Scripture is the truth, our baseline, our standard for what is real, what is truth in this world. And when we do that, we will trigger unbelievers. Let's, let's go to our last point here, and I'll show it to you in our passage. How do we trigger unbelievers? We need to practice a changed life. We need to practice a changed life. Verse 37 of our passage says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, use his works, his, his miracles. And again, remember, the context of this passage is chapter 9 when he heals that man who was born blind. He's saying, use these miracles, the works that I've done as evidence to believe me. And we see the rest of what happens in chapter 10, why, why he is different from the rest of, of the, the, the so-called shepherds that came before, the thieves and robbers that came before him. None of them has performed such miracles. None of them have done such works. None of them have claimed such things. Only Jesus. Jesus saying, use those things as evidence to believe me. Christ's works or him doing the works of the Father is evidence and proof of his claims. It gives legitimacy to them, evidence that he is in fact divine, the Son of God. Similarly, when we live a holy and set-apart life, we prove the work of God in us. We prove the reality of what God has been doing in us, the regenerated heart, the renewed mind. We prove in evidence what God, has been, what God has been sanctifying and consecrating in us. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
Jesus himself said that we are called to be the salt and light of the world. When we live according to the new nature, to the principles and the truths of Scripture, when we live to imitate Christ, with, with, God, with, with Christ being the, our highest authority, with our life being different than the world, in not just our worldview, not just in our faith, not just in our belief, but in how we live in our practice, contrary to the world, the world will hate us. When we prioritize the things of God first, when we prioritize church above other things, when we prioritize the people of God first, when we invest into the kingdom first, before the world, when we make every decision, every choice for our life and our family that would bring glory to God, that, that which would bring most glory to God, when we don't talk like the world or think like the world or do things like the world, when we don't find pleasure in the things of the world, when we don't find satisfaction and contentment in the things of the world, when we behave differently and produce mannerisms that are of citizens of the, hev- of, of the kingdom of God, of heaven, the world will hate us. Because we are not of this kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, as I said. As a result, the world will revile us because it hates what we stand for, what has changed us. Because as I said, our testimony proves God's way is best and that man's way is doomed. That's ultimately what they see. Why they hate us. It proves that God is true and that man is a liar. It proves that they require repentance. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, now verse 27, says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. The reason why the the, the Pharisees were so triggered and so provoked by these miracles and these works of Christ and why the world will hate us when we live according to the new nature and our identity in Christ, because it's evidence of their damnation their destruction. But unless they too repent of their sin and follow Christ, they are headed towards the wrath of God. Church, that is what we're called to live out. Though the world malign us because we live differently, because we practice a life that has been changed, changed by the gospel, We must continue to bear witness through our lives of this great hope of salvation in Christ. We must not shrink back in fear. Fear of man just because they ostracize us, just because they they ridicule us. Again, our faithfulness to the gospel, to a life that has been changed by the gospel, to holiness is a testimony to them, is a witness to them. So, as, as, as just, in, just summarizing everything and putting some, practice, some application here. Or first, we'll get into the reward and hope that we talked about earlier. 
Again, how do, how do we trigger unbelievers? We proclaim Jesus as God. We proclaim him as the highest authority over our lives and in, even in this world. We prof- profess scripture as truth. We stand on scripture as our, uh, as our baseline, our standard for what is true. And then, of course, we, we practice a changed life. We practice a changed life. We, we faithfully live out the call to holiness, to a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning of our sermon, right, there's a reward, there's a hope that we have as believers. Should we, should we endure and persevere in, in the ridicule and the hate that unbelievers will show us as a result of being true? There is a hope, there is a reward in that, and we see that in our passage. Look at this with me. It says in verse 39, Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is not the reward, by the way. Escape is not the reward. Though it is hope that God provides a way of escape in times of trials and tribulations, that he does help us endure trials. But this is not the reward. Look at this with me, verse 40. here's, Here's what I'm talking about. He went away again across to the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. In verse 42, it says, and many believed in him there. When we proclaim that, that Christ is God, our highest authority, when we profess that scripture is true, when we practice a life that has been changed by the gospel to exemplify the salvation that is in Christ, Yes, the world will hate us, but some will believe us. Some will turn from their dead, sinful ways and believe Christ. When we live under the authority of Christ and proclaim the truth of Scripture, when we live a life that is different, a life that is worthy of the gospel, it is a witness, a testimony to unbelievers It is a tool in which God can use to save the lost. To draw a sinful world to himself. This is what we see in our passage. Despite despite the rejection of the Pharisees to Christ all throughout chapter 10 and even the passages before that. There are still some who come to him and believe Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, talking about his own life, his own changed life, how God brought him out of being a persecutor of the church and to become an apostle for him. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul understood that his testimony of his own life change was a witness of God's faithfulness to save sinners, to redeem sinners, to forgive them. And we see this as an example in the early church as well. In the book of Acts, when people were being saved on a daily basis, it was because they saw the church, they saw the apostles as being different. There's something different about them. It's because they were followers of Christ. In an age where conformity to the world is the norm, the people of God must be the exception. The people of the gospel must be the exception. 
We must show the world a better way. We must preach to the world the truth. So maybe some thoughts to consider as we just close up our time here. The unbelievers in your life, their family members or people in your workplaces, I'm not saying that they, they should all hate you, but what are you showing to them? Are they being triggered by you? Have you, do they know that Christ is the highest authority in your life? Do, you, do they know that you stand on the truth of Scripture? Is your life any different than theirs? We are called to be a witness to the lost, to a dying world. The way that we do that is by living out these principles. Proclaim Jesus as God. Profess scripture as truth. And practice a changed life. To the lost, I invite you, as always, come to Christ. God has made a way so that you can have a right relationship with him. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die for your sins. He paid the price for your sins. He entered the grave that you should have been in. That you can have life through him. The Bible says that we are called to put our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. Our hope in Christ alone for our, for our future. Because it's only through Christ that can, can we be saved. Can we have a relationship with God? So if, yet, if you have yet to do that, I invite you to do that today. Put your faith in him today. To the found, to the church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As, I, as we always pray every week, may you live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel that has saved you. Worthy of the, the citizenship that you have. Citizen of heaven. Kingdom of God. That the world might see, truly see your light in this dark place. There's many people out there who need hope, need assurance for the future. And it is our opportunity, our responsibility to be salt and light in their world. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word that edifies us and washes us. We thank you for your word that convicts us and brings to light where we have strayed. Father, as we just take this time to examine our hearts, I pray that you would reveal in everyone's hearts, O oh God, where we have gone astray where we can represent you better in the world. 
where you need to be the highest authority in in our lives again, where the truth of your word needs to reign supreme, where we need to live up to the gospel that has saved us. Reveal to us, O God, where we have strayed and where we have wandered. And Father, I pray for the believer, for the brother or sister who is going through trials because of their faith, who is experiencing persecution and ridicule because of their love for you. I pray that you would strengthen that brother. I pray that you would give endurance to that sister. regardless of what the world says, regardless of what others say, even family members who are unbelievers, I pray, God, that they would be able to stand and stand firm, that they would not shrink back in fear, but that they would also find grace and mercy and hope and love in you. Lord, you have declared in your word The world will hate us, but take heart. You have overcome the world. You are sovereign. You are king over this fallen world. We are your own. We are part of your family. That is a hope and an assurance that we can have, that only those in Christ can have. So help us be bold. Help us stand firm. Help us endure, O God, as we go back to the world and help us be the light to them, to bring your light to them, O God. And Lord, may you use us, may you use our witness, our testimony to add more to your family, O God. To save those who you're calling to repentance, O God. Pray, God, for the lost who's hearing my voice that this day would be a day of salvation, that, God, you'd bring about salvation today. That you'd bring about a right relationship with you. I pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.